This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. We pray, God, that your word might come alive today in us, and I pray through me. Nope, I don't like that. Can we start over? (laughs) Thank you. All right. Good morning. My name is Laura Fine Ledford. I'm delighted to be with you today and to be able to preach among you on this third Sunday of Advent. I serve as the pastor for leadership development with the Apex UMC Family of Faith. Will you pray with me? Come among us, Lord Jesus, today in your word read and proclaimed so that we might sense your spirit and go forth from this place to live out your calling in the world. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I was sitting in the chair at the salon, leaned back, getting my hair washed, which is the best part, when the stylist asked me the question that I had been hoping the whole time he wouldn't ask. What do you do for a living? Now, when that question has been asked in prior times, I have um, often thought about just lying. I thought about saying, well, I'm in banking, or maybe kind of massaging the truth and saying, well, you know, I'm in nonprofit management. I'm not proud of this reaction. As a pastor, I should be accustomed to the question. I should be enthusiastic about answering it, about sharing my calling to the church and to ordination, why the story of the gospel is so compelling. Now, in my defense, there are a lot of reasons, I think, to hesitate. Sometimes when you tell people that you're a pastor, they will immediately apologize for cussing earlier in the conversation or for telling you that they live with their boyfriend. Sometimes they will start spouting really iffy theology that kind of makes my skin crawl. And sometimes, I mean, you just want to go to the salon and get your roots done in peace, you know? But that day, when the stylist asked, what do you do for a living? I answered, honestly, I'm not even sure why. It could be because at that time I was about two years out of seminary and all of the things that I had learned, while so important and so necessary, they just weren't adequate for what I was trying to navigate as a pastor. The dynamics of serving a church with lots of people and lots of different opinions on everything from what Jesus meant when he said things in scripture to um, opinions on the type of shoes that I wore on Sunday morning. The overwhelm of trying to respond to the need in our community that just never seemed to lessen. The pain of watching people die too soon and feeling like I should have answers, but I didn't. There were many days when I wondered what I was doing and if this life with Jesus mattered at all. So when the stylist asked me that day, what do you do for a living? I answered, I said, I'm a pastor. And 
to his credit, he didn't apologize for cussing. He didn't tell me some interpretation of the Bible that made me want to actually throw a Bible at his head. He didn't clam up uncomfortably. He just said, oh, how'd you get into that? I had to stop. I had to think back. Before the difficult church days, before seminary, back to the pew, sitting next to my grandparents when I was in college, when I started to learn the rhythm of worshiping week in and week out and how those songs and those prayers started to feel like the scaffolding of my life, I had to think back to the pew next to my grandparents when the stories of scripture made my heart beat faster as I started to hear about a God who dreams and works for a world with greater justice and mercy and kindness. Sitting there next to my grandparents in a pew as I heard about a God who believed so much in us and wanted to love us so up close that God sent Jesus in the flesh to teach us how to dream God's dreams, to restore our sense of worth. But I didn't say any of that to my stylist. I guess I just fell in love with Jesus, I told him. Which sounded so inelegant, so fumbly, so on the surface of what I really wanted to say. But it seemed like more than enough of an explanation to him because he didn't ask me anything else, thank God, which left me to just sit there with those inelegant words in my mouth, wondering why my heart was beating fast all over again, wondering why I was tearing up. It was as if saying those words out loud helped me to believe them again. We throw around words like, testimony and evangelism in the church. Maybe not as much as Methodists. Those words seem to embarrass us a little bit. But occasionally a pastor will realize that she hasn't talked about testimony in a while and she'll she'll bump up against a passage about John the Baptist who spent his whole life as a testimony to the one who was coming after him. And she'll think, when was the last time I said out loud how I ended up here? a pastor, a disciple, someone compelled by the story of good news that Jesus is still teaching us. And if we were here together in this room, I might ask you that same question. I might even say the four words that send chills down the spines of anybody gathered in a group. I would say, turn to your neighbor. I'd say, turn to your neighbor and and tell that person why you're here today. Or I might say, turn to your neighbor and tell them why this place matters to you. Or I might say, how'd you get into all this? Discipleship, trying to follow in the ways of Jesus. And you would probably roll your eyes and mutter that I hadn't spent enough time on my sermon if I was filling it with this terribly uncomfortable mid-worship neighbor talk, but you might do it because I'm smiling and encouraging you, and you turn to your neighbor and you'd fumble around for the words to describe how Jesus got a hold of you. Or you might say that you don't actually know why you're here. Your spouse dragged you 
or you've never not shown up for worship, or something just leads you here week after week, and you're not even sure if you believe any of this stuff, but you feel better when you walk out the door. If you were here talking to your neighbor, your words would likely be inelegant and surface compared to what you really want to say. You might not sound like John the Baptist, the valedictorian of witnessing, but you might just sound honest. And you might just find your throat closing up with tears that you didn't expect. Your heart beating a little bit faster. I guess we can thank the pandemic that you're getting off the hook from one of those awkward conversations. But if you're the brave type, you could hit pause on your TV or your laptop and you could tell the person in your house the answer to that question. You could write it down. You could text it to a friend who you know is watching worship in their own home alongside you. How did you end up here? Why do you keep Coming back. These are some of the questions that John the Baptist wrestled with in our story this week. John, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, a relative of Jesus who was born just a few months before Mary gave birth. John, who was sent to clear a path, to make space with his words and his deeds so that other people could see and hear Jesus more clearly. John, whose whole life was about pointing toward the life of another. John, the the titan of testimony, shows up this week to fumble through some questions of his own. Now, I say the, the valedictorian of witnessing, the titan of testimony, because that's what he's doing every time we meet John in Scripture. He's always pointing away from himself, gesturing toward Jesus. I must decrease so that he can increase. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. In fact, if you've seen any paintings or icons of John the Baptist, you may have noticed that this is often how he is depicted, hand outstretched, pointing gesturing beyond himself. Here in this 14th century icon, or in this more modern day rendition, even in this painting of the crucifixion, which takes place long after John had died, the artist chose to include him. And there John stands, pointing a long, solitary finger toward Jesus on the cross. From what we know of him, that's what he did. Even as a child, John lived on the edge of town, pointing toward the one who was to come. He spent years, likely, waiting and keeping watch and pointing toward Jesus even when there was no one there to see him, talking to the trees or singing to the birds, telling them about the one who was promised, the word who created us, who was coming to make us whole. Maybe he was there because he just needed to say the words out loud to himself so that he could keep believing them. But eventually... 
One person passed by in the wilderness and stopped to listen, and then another and another until it was a small crowd. People who saw him pointing and followed his hand until they could see the Savior who might just usher in a new day for all of God's people. A Savior who would bring good news to the oppressed, who would bind up the brokenhearted, who would proclaim release to the captive and to the prisoner, who would comfort those who mourn. And eventually, it was a big enough crowd that John starts to get some notoriety from all of that pointing in the wilderness. In the story today, there's enough of a stir that some of the religious authorities have even tramped out into the wilderness so that they can find him, trying to get answers from this peculiar young fellow. Who are you, they ask? What are you doing out here? How did you end up doing this? Not... Not as nonchalantly as my hairstylist, but that was the gist of their questions. Well, I'm, I'm not the Messiah, he answers. Well, what are you then? Elijah? N- nope, I'm not him either. Are you the prophet? No. John, the The relative of Jesus who's been prepping for this his whole life. The the titan of testimony. He fumbles around just like you and me. He's about as inarticulate and inelegant as we are as we try to explain how this life with Jesus got a hold of us. All he could do was say who he wasn't. All he could do was continue to point. "I'm, I'm not the Messiah. I guess I've just fallen in love with him. I'm not fit to tie his sandals only to turn toward him and to turn you all toward him and to tell you why a life of following him, of witnessing to his goodness is the only life worth living. Now, did John doubt? Yes. And for good reason. All of that pointing towards someone who said that they were going to take down the mighty and lift up the lowly. People in power were not interested in hearing that. And John was arrested. And while he was in prison, he sent some of his friends to ask Jesus, Are you the one to come or should we wait for another? A question that so many of us have asked as we have kept watch and found God silent. Or kept watch and found the world to be a place where the lowly are not yet lifted up. Where the mighty never do seem to fall. Are you the one or should we wait for another? Sitting in a prison cell knowing that death was likely imminent, John wondered if all of the pointing, all of the witnessing to this supposed Messiah was all for nothing. Tell John, Jesus said, what you see in the world. The deaf hear, the blind receive their sight, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news announced to them. Go back and tell John what you see, Jesus told his friends. Go to John and point. Fumble with words, inarticulate, inelegant as they may be, but hold out your hand and show him where the Messiah is coming near. He pointed out the goodness to you. Now go do the same for him. Rachel Held Evans 
an incredible writer and theologian, a skeptical and deep believer in Jesus, once said, I am a Christian because the story of Jesus is still the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. That is my testimony too. As shy as I feel about saying it out loud. Jesus born among us is still the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. And the story I continue to find true over and over, even in seasons where I wonder aloud, are you the one to come or should we wait for another? In this Advent season, perhaps more than any other that I have experienced, I need to believe this story. That God is just not satisfied to leave us to our own devices. That, that pointing to Jesus and patterning our lives and our loves after him is in fact the only life worth living. That God is, even now, working in the shadows to create new ways of healing us. In this Advent season, perhaps more than any other that we have experienced, our neighbors need to hear this story. Our friends, our kids, our spouses. I'm not asking you to go out on the street corner and hold some kind of cringy sign and yell at people as they drive by in their cars. I'm not not asking you to go to the grocery store and ask the lady next to you if she has accepted Jesus as her personal Savior and Lord. I'm just asking you, in the midst of a season that feels especially painful and isolating and frightening, To point. To point to those places where dead things are coming back to life, where healing is occurring, where good news is being showered upon the poor. Point. Point to what is compelling about Jesus, what challenges you, what keeps you coming back. Even if you fumble, even if you are are inarticulate, even if it's just you and the trees and the birds, even if you're just saying those words out loud so that you can believe them again, point. So that others might follow your hand and see this God who is still coming near. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.